the classic Brit, the Blythe Bond. If Connery brought the swagger, it was Roger Moore who brought the smile. His jubilant approach to playing the iconic secret agent was, and remains, a controversial interpretation of the role. But with seven outings as Bond, he became the spy many loved to the Moonraker and back, and many did not. I'm American film journalist Rupert Carmichael. Join me and our most beloved Bond, George Lazenby, for a tantalizing introspection about where Bond began and where he's going next. In conjunction with the PBS and the BBC, this is Building a Better Bond. Welcome back again, listeners. Thanks for joining myself and George Lazenby again for another what I hope to be insightful afternoon, evening, or morning, whenever you're listening to this program, conversation about the history of the James Bond franchise. Today we talk about perhaps the role's most controversial interpreter. He was Bond for almost two decades across seven films, remembered by many, but not always fondly. I speak, of course, of one Sir Roger Moore. George, before we get into it, I know that your opinions on Roger Moore are pronounced and and well extolled in the media. To frame the conversation, how do you feel to be talking about who you have called your arch nemesis? Rupert, I think this is going to be one of those just grin and bear it episodes. I, I pitched the idea, if you recall, to you and our producers, that we just make this episode an hour of silence and then move on. That's right. When the producers, I must say good-naturedly, gave you a, a report about the sort of listenership we would lose in such an event, you mm-hmm. very dramatically, and I have to say impressively, as it was a laminated file, tore it in half. I did. I summoned the strength of James Bond within me, because it always is there, because, you know, I am James Bond. But having to talk about Roger Moore for an entire hour-long episode is torture for me. Why couldn't we do a second George Lazenby episode, for instance? It's a very uh, a hard topic, and I had to install a seatbelt on my seat here, recording with you, because remember, before we started recording, I was pacing around, I was stewing back and forth. And, and we, we can't record like that, of course. Uh, no, no, we can't. We, you, you also were pacing on top of the of the desk here, top of the studio, getting tangled in the equipment, which only intensified your ire. The paramedics had to come and untangle me, and so that's why we're recording a little later than usual. That's right. Now, perhaps, listeners, you've already gotten a taste of how Mr. Lazenby feels about Roger Moore. But, George, if you would, and I can see tiny droplets of blood perforating on your brow, just do us a favor as a listenership and explain why you view Roger Moore as so contentious. Now, it's hard to pinpoint just one thing because there are so many. He basically came into a franchise where you were supposed to have that iconic Walter PPK and he came in with a shotgun of just jokes and antics and blew it all the shit. That is a succinct and, in some ways, poetic interpretation. I've been taking poetry classes. It really shows. To express how I feel. You know, it's almost a catharsis for me at this point. It shows, George. And perhaps you would be so kind as to take us through a shotgun full of anecdotes about why you feel 
Roger Moore, in your own words, ruined the franchise, or attempted to. Well, I think there's no better place to begin, Rupert, than the iconic martini of James Bond. An aperitif to a conversation that's sure to leave us full. What about Moore's martini tips you off as a connoisseur of the role that things were in trouble? Well, as everyone knows, Rupert, James Bond orders a vodka martini. You shake a vodka martini, you don't stir it. That's probably the most iconic James Bond line of all time. Roger Moore preferred gin martinis. Do you know what you do with a gin martini, Rupert? No. You don't shake it. Do you stir it, George? You fucking stir it with a tiny little stirring spoon. Mm. And even though he could have cast that aside for, you know, cinematic effect and just drank a fake drink, he insisted that he had gin martinis on set that were stirred and not shaken. Now, how does someone have the hubris to do that? You know, I, I think what just pisses me off about Roger Moore, Rupert, try to imagine working with someone with such a huge fucking ego. Try to imagine going to work every day. Do you mind if I put my feet up on your chair, by the way? No, I welcome it. Try to imagine someone that doesn't let you get a word in edgewise, that has such an overarching and overshadowing ego that it's impossible to even be around. Can you even imagine working with someone like that, Rupert? It's beyond my ability to conceive. But that's who Roger Moore was, you know? He had these gin martinis. And he even tried to get this iconic drink removed from the franchise, if you can believe it. You don't say. Now, George, I consider myself quite up to date on the lore and legends of Bondism, but I've never heard of this particular story. Please, enlighten me and all of our listeners. I think that listeners should know that, of course, I only did one James Bond. You know this route. Of course. You only needed one, George Lesby. I only needed one. I could have done seven. I could have, but I decided not to. I left, Sean came back for one, and then they hired Roger Moore. But I agreed, because they frankly begged me, to stay on as a creative consultant through the franchise. I only lasted one Roger Moore film. I had to walk off set because I, I couldn't take him anymore. It was great to work with Sean Connery because I could sort of retroactively give him advice based on my experience of James Bond for Diamonds Are Forever. Certainly. But working with Roger Moore was, it was terrible. He came in and first it's the gin martini and then he comes in with a strawberry decory and then a mojito. A mojito, George. Yes, where does it stop? Where does it stop, Rupert, I ask you? That is brazen bordering on the instigatory. He actually hired his own drink stylist and this drink stylist... Her name was Holly Chrysanthemum. You know, it's just the, the most annoying Hollywood name you could even think of. She was second billing right below him for all the movies that followed. You know, she was putting feathers and garnishes and everything else in his drinks. Who can forget the martini he consumes in, for your eyes only, four lit sparklers affixed to the side of a bongo drum full of gin and not vermouth, but instead fluorescent pineapple juice. It makes me want to projectile vomit at the screen whenever I see that. You know, and this, and this happened for seven films, Rupert. More frilly, fruity drinks when it could have been the most simple, iconic thing and Roger Moore ruined it. George, would you say this drink or drinks was indicative of a cavalier attitude towards the role? A belief that he did not need to take his work seriously. I think... You are spot on, Rupert. Roger Moore was already a big film and television star. He didn't really need James Bond. He didn't pull himself up by his bootstraps like Sean Connery and I did. You know, he actually, he didn't even believe in bootstraps. He would walk around with his shoes flopping all about. How did they even stay on? I don't know. I 
imagine with laces, but that seems to be beside the point of your metaphor, George. Didn't believe in laces either. Are you positing, George, to us that he won Roger Moore, walked around without any mechanism for affixing his shoes or boots to his feet? Yeah, I mean, that's what I assume, at least. I, I never actually took the time to, to observe and, and kiss his feet like everybody else on set. But I would believe that he, because he didn't believe he needed to pull himself up by his bootstraps, he would just... Let his shoes fly and let him hang loose. Let us simply pray that he did not wear sandals. George, you say that those around him kissed his feet. So to speak, they sang his praises. The talk about Roger Moore has soured in time. Not for all, but for some. He's become very contentious as a figure in the history of the franchise. But it must be remembered that during his heyday in the 70s and 80s, he was rather beloved. Can we talk the talk about Roger Moore's talking and the talk about him? I don't quite know what you're getting at, Rupert, but if you're talking about Roger Moore's annoying British accent, then of course I would love to talk about that. Yes, George, let's break ground there. He has a classic Londoner's pinch in his voice. It rubbed some the wrong way. You being one of the most vocal about his vocals. You know, he, he had this quintessential British accent, and some might argue that Sean Connery nor I really had a British accent, obviously, to begin with, and Roger Moore was the first one who was, you know, the, the quintessential Bond from England. But James Bond was supposed to be a gritty character with an edge, and Roger Moore sounded like a, a rich boy whose dad let him play secret agent on the weekends. Funny you should bring that up. We have here, as we like to do, an excerpt from someone related to the Braun franchise. It is from Roger Moore's governess. Uh, her name, Tilda McAsween, details in her autobiography, The Maudlings of Moore, that Roger would often, in his lad years, cavort about pretending to be an agent of MI6. He would arrest woodland creatures and disguise himself as town merchants and organ grinders, acting out wild fantasies that his wealthy parents would endlessly indulge, often to the chagrin of Tilda. Now, can you tell us about how Roger Moore's past shaped the future of the franchise? I'd like to, Rupert. I just don't know what went wrong. You know, you'd think that he was on the right track, but... He got this quintessential, this iconic secret agent part, and he just didn't care about it. He wanted to make it a spoof, if nothing else. And, you know, we've talked at length about spoofs already. People, I don't want to say that they were losing faith in the James Bond franchise, but perhaps they were searching for something more lighthearted. And you have to be careful what you wish for, of course. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't discuss any specific quips that Roger Moore had because I refuse to acknowledge them uh, and I refuse to repeat them and I refuse to give him credit for for being clever at all because I'm sure they all sucked. But what I do know is his delivery got so overdone and comedic as the films went on. He winked at the camera more than he looked at his other actors on set. He wanted a snare hit after every single one of his quips. You know, where does it end? Where indeed he bears the ignominity of the only Bond to ever employ a slide whistle in his film. He wanted actually different whistles for different types of quips 
and different horns to accompany all his jokes. There were some places in The Man with the Golden Gun where you couldn't hear the dialogue because he had added so many whistles in post. It's true. Listeners, if you're only familiar with the digitally remastered versions, treat yourselves to a fascinating experience. Watch The Man with the Golden Gun and listen to one of Britain's most off-employed-at-bar-mitzvah's bands, Ted Lewis's Mound of Sounds. They are a 16-piece ensemble playing things like the wind chimes, the mouth harp, and, of course, the infamous slide whistle. They boast eight kazoo players. This is the soundtrack originally posted with the man with the golden gun. It was a agonizing experience for some, but, George, we must confront the cold truth. The truth that history has eroded away with the lens of quality, but at the time, Joe and Jane moviegoer were enamored with this man of a million winks. And you know, I've, I've talked to Joe and Jane moviegoer myself, and I don't understand why we put so much stake in these two people liking the film. You know, why did people care so much about their opinions? Of course, they were high-powered movie critics at the time, but are we just going to blindly follow this shenanigan of a James Bond franchise? Thankfully, the answer now is a more measured approach, but at the time... In the 70s and the early 80s, Roger Moore ran a cabal of high-influential glitz and glamorites, especially in the hobnob hills of Hollywood. This, some have posited, ensured his longevity despite the unconventional take he brought to the role. I will say, Rupert, that there were some people, myself included, who wanted something different than Roger Moore. If you'll remember, Sean Connery was asked to come back to play James Bond in Never Say Never Again because of a, a rights issue, and a different studio was able to make that movie. So Octopussy and Never Say Never Again were competing, which means even after four films with Roger Moore, people would still have preferred Connery. A astute Observation. They probably would have preferred George Lazenby even more. I'm just, you know, making an inference. I think that goes without saying, but what will need to be said is an investigation about why. Why the public, for one time and one time only, was split on who should be Bond. I think it's a conversation that will take us through the annals of technology. Don't go anywhere. There's more Building a Better Bond coming right around the corner. Hello, listeners. This is Rupert Carmichael from Building a Better Bond. I wanted to take this opportunity to tell you about an exciting series from the PBS and the BBC. Now, if I told you to listen up and write this down, what piece of paper would you instinctively reach for? A post-it note? A note card? Letter-sized or tabloid? After all, whichever rectangular tabula rasa you reserve for writing is dictated by the subject. Or... Is it the other way round? As our friend Marshall McLuhan says, is it the medium that is the message? Paperboys, host Stephen Mueller and Rince Thompson set out to uncover the true meaning behind the standards of paper sizing. It's their mission to account for every inch and leave no page unturned. Every episode will be recorded and then transcribed onto a new paper size each week and mailed to your front door for your reading pleasure. Episodes will range from 9 to 15 hours long, so postage, wait, may vary. But if you subscribe now at paperboyspodcast.com forward slash bond, 
you'll get a $7 mail-in rebate card for the end of the season, which ends April 2026. The paper boys start sizing up paper this fall. Hey mates, it's Laz. People always ask me how I got the part of the world's greatest secret agent without having acted a day in my life. And until now, I've told them because I'm me and you're not. But people assume I'm joking and have more to say on the subject. So with the help of the BBS and the BBC, I've put together my own acting masterclass. The full six-minute course goes over everything from warm-ups to cool-downs and gives just enough time for some key insights from yours truly. Again, I don't have much to talk about, but like a good jazz record, it's what I don't say that will be the most meaningful on your journey to potentially becoming the next James Bond. Legally, I apparently need to tell you that there's a 0% guarantee of that actually happening from taking this course, but you can dream. Again, legally, I need to tell you that dreaming about becoming James Bond during or after taking this course offers a 0% guarantee of becoming James Bond in future films. Regardless, enroll at bbc.com. And now, back to building a better Bond. Welcome back, listeners. And now, we move on to a subject that runs the gamut from the intriguing to the absurd. The technology of James Bond has always elit the imaginations of the viewing public, and in many ways, Roger Moore's films were no different. This, perhaps, is where opinion on his take takes the hardest fork. Some call it extravagant, some ludicrous, George, I have a feeling I know where you land on the issue, but let's uncover it. What should you think of Roger Moore's suite of Bond technology? Sorry, I, I got out of my straps during the ad breaks, and I had to be strapped back in because it was just infuriating me, Rupert. A big thanks to the California Department of Natural Resources for having two bear handlers here on set with us to restrain and refasten the straps on, on Mr. Lazenby's chair that would be tori and jennifer thank you thank you again for your work on the show thank you they've actually restrained my hands too because i was flailing and punching at you wildly rupert don't take anything personally uh, so what, what were we talking about we we're talking about the technology right i don't think there's any better illustration in the james bond franchise that proves less is more and i realize that you made that joke last episode but i think and i think you'll agree that it sounds a bit better coming out of my mouth with that velvety molasses australian accent it is difficult to argue even on a factual and empirical basis now we've talked about hubris and the ego and how terrible it is to work with someone do you mind if i have a, a bite of a sandwich by the way no I, I intended to eat that after the show but please uh what's mine is right, yours thanks. we are we are co-hosts after all right so anyway you know working with someone who just doesn't respect anything around him and are you gonna have a bit of that soda too it's actually mineral water if you'd still want some oh there's a prescription I, I think it'll be fine now Okay, so, you know, working with someone who doesn't respect anybody around him, who's so fucking annoying, I know that, Rupert, you can't imagine working with someone like that. I had to briefly, and I think it really manifested in all the technology of James Bond. You know, these are supposed to be things that are almost otherworldly, you know, that take you to a place of almost uh, anticipation of fear because something amazing had been thought of for these films. Roger Moore had a whole slew of dumbass gadgets up the wazoo that made the franchise almost laughable. Mm, and I don't believe you're referring only to specifically his wazoo, which was a undergarment concealed tube, which he once used to make a exaggerated fart noise to distract one of his 
assailants. Well, I forgot about that one. And I've seemed to have gotten loose of one of my arm straps because you've mentioned that now. Frightening strength capabilities. You know, I'm I'm sorry if I make a a swipe at your face because that just pisses me off so much. In the world of Roger Moore as James Bond, a gadget could essentially be any stupid thing that he thought was funny. Just for an example, wristwatches could do essentially anything in any of his films. He had some sort of sponsorship deal with Timex for the entirety of his film run. So wristwatches with lasers, wristwatches that, you know, you talk to, wristwatches that make fart noises, whatever. And I can't tell you how annoying this is to watch Roger Moore do things with, at times, five different wristwatches on his hands. Like, can't you just think of something else? Perhaps the most gratuitous example from the deleted features of The Spy Who Loved Me, a wristwatch that is a reversible wristwatch and nothing else. You can simply turn the wristwatch inside out. And Roger Moore does this on camera for nine minutes reversing and re-reversing it bedazzles his love interest in the film who consummately consummates the relationship while he continues to wear the watch you know and and speaking of wearables i think the most egregious example of a roger moore gadget is and i'm, I'm sure you know where i'm going rupert the infamous clown suit costume quick change from octopussy even i as a neutral observer, a seeker of truth and a journalist, grimace at the effectuer that is that particular scene. So for people who aren't as cinematically inclined as Rupert or or I, a costume quick change is what happens when there's a stationary camera and someone walks into a door, the door closes, and you edit it so it looks like the person comes out in a different costume in a second. This technique was employed by, I don't know, the Laurel and Hardy and Charlie Chaplin, and Roger Moore thought it would be a great fucking idea to do as James Bond as well. He's trying to evade a pursuer, and he's in his tuxedo. He goes into a trailer, closes the door, and a second later comes out in full clown regalia. Listeners, if you're thinking to yourself, it can't be true, I promise you, every word of it, Every stitch of thread on that elaborate jester's garb is the God's honest truth. And this was, I think you'll agree, George, one of the many ways in which some of the greatest Bond movie concepts were upended by Roger Moore's unique point of view on the character Octopussy, thought to be and geared to be one of the sultriest, sexiest movies in the franchise, instead known as one of the most slapstick for scenes like that and many others. You know, when you establish a character as powerful as James Bond, and then you start to infuse it with all these comedic different effects, it really pulls the rug out from the entire concept. And I'm not talking about the the rug pulling scene in A View to a Kill. I'm being metaphorical. Roger Moore constantly wanted to pull the rug out from under pursuers. And I think this really gets back to the fact that, you know, I, I think we've all seen comedians be able to do dramatic work very well. Roger Moore was the opposite. You can't go from a dramatic actor to doing comedy. One point, Rupert, I walked on the set of Octopussy and there were nine Marx Brothers in the cast. Thankfully, their contributions to the film only ended up being advisory. But Marx Brothers from distant bloodlines across the sea were brought in on boats and planes at no small expense to flood 
scenes of the movie with outrageous capers of almost indescribable range. You've, you have a great point, Rupert. but this wasn't your Grouchos, your, your Zephyr Marxes. These were just distant relatives. There was Zimpo and Shimpo and... Blupo. Blupo Marx. Uh, Blupo. Don't even get me started on Blupo. Roger Moore just thought these guys could add so much to the film, but every single one of them deteriorated it even more. So it did. And so we see this was the attitude that Roger Moore took towards the technology. Technology in the Bond films is meant to twist our imagination forward into the shape of many interesting, intriguing, and almost impossible gadgets. Instead, we have such classics as the car that is drivable when it is cut in half and of course who can forget bond's nemesis jaws a man with jaws Uh, i've gotten out of my other strap thankfully jennifer was there with a tranquilizer dart straight to the sternum great shooting jennifer again listeners go ahead and write to your local dnr and thank them for the good work that they do whether it is recapturing rabid raccoons or restraining beloved movie stars Now, George, should we perhaps bring this talk of technology to a singularity by investigating this villain who has, despite the odds, stuck in the collective imagination of Bond lovers? You know, you have these things that may seem like a good idea on paper, and then they they just take off a little too fast. You know, so people still talk about how much they love Jaws, but... When you really think about it, he's just a guy with metal teeth. That's all there is to it. He's a large man with metal teeth. You know, and, and nothing against Richard Kyle, but he didn't add anything, let alone the fact that it was a guy with metal teeth, and this movie, Moonraker, takes place in outer space. So already, you know, going into the film, you've got James Bond in outer space. What are you trying to do to people? We go now to an excerpt written by Richard Kyle the actor who played Jaws, it details his desperate attempts to reinvigorate his own character. Kyle, of course, a classically staged, trained thespian who brought a proud tradition of Bond villains to his role, but only had so much to work with. It says here, with the setting of space, truly the possibilities for Jaws were endless. I thought perhaps he could carry a small mechanical shark that would swim through the stars attempting to bite Roger Moore. Also, perhaps brass knuckles that looked like shark teeth, or even detachable dentures that were actually C4 charges. All of these and more were shot down by Moore personally, who said, Nah, mate, I want a guy who has scary-looking braces. That's it. That's all. It's my movie. Poignant. I think this is evidence, Rupert, that other people around the film, discounting all the Marx Brothers and Roger Moore, were trying to make good films. They had good ideas, but they just kept getting chipped away and chipped away until what's very hard for me to talk about is his last film, A View to a Kill, where there was a piece of technology that really illustrated the fact that they had run out of ideas. They were scraping the bottom of the barrel, and they stole something from me that I don't think I'll ever be able to get back. Listeners, it's with a heavy heart that I attempt to remain neutral as we move on to talk about at first where Tux blended into tech, a gadget in the loosest use of the term that was pilfered directly, a pocket picked from one of our own, George Lazenby. Rupert, if I were to ask you 
in your opinion, what the best piece of technology was in my film on Her Majesty's Secret Service, but also in any Bond film, what would you say? It's a difficult question with so many good answers, but it would have to be the one that has stood the test of time, not only in technology, but also fashion. Something many of our listeners are enjoying right now. It's, of course, pocket gloves. Fucking A right, Rupert. Pocket gloves. That was something that I came up with that was in my film and in A View to a Kill. Roger Moore had run out of ideas. He didn't have room for any more people with metal teeth or whoopee cushions. And he was researching and decided to take the best piece of technology, the best idea ever, and just reuse it in his film. It's true. A View to a Kill, a film with many flaws. I think I have to imagine that the writing was on the wall. Roger Moore's time, like so many prop hourglasses, was running thin and the public was demanding with their wallets a new take. Golden Gun had tarnished into a shade of lackluster bronze. And Roger Moore did the unthinkable. He, James Bond, ripped off an idea. The only word for it is unforgivable. Mm-hmm. And in this scene, if it's not too painful to speak of it, how are the pocket gloves employed? He gets in a tickle fight with the villain. And the gloves being made of pure Manchurian silk are, as Moore describes it in the scene, extra tickly. He describes it directly to the camera, actually, breaking the fourth wall and winking. Furthermore, he addresses the camera operator by name. He says, so Wayne Johnston, camera operator, this is why I'm a better tickler now, because these pocket gloves are extra tickly because of the silk that they are made from. It's what he says to the camera as he winks with each eye in rapid succession. It looks very much like he is having a stroke. And I think collectively the audiences wished they were having one as well. But what they were seeing was very real. Much too real. The fantasy, once suspended, now upended. It tumbled down into grim reality. How else does the suit that Roger Moore wore display to the world his intentions with Bond. A common thread we've discussed here, Rupert, in this episode is a lack of commitment to the character of James Bond. And I think nothing better describes Roger Moore's lack of commitment than the tuxedo. Roger Moore resented having to lose weight to play the part of James Bond. He was a very unproportional man. He wasn't, you know, fit. And he wasn't a stunning Adonis like I am. He liked the sculpted physique of an early Connery and and certainly a still to this day as the mangled bear irons laying next to your seat can attest George Lazenby he had infamously rotund thighs they would often gleam all the way through his suit pants he was probably one of the most unproportional people I've ever seen. As he did more and more films and as more slapstick comedians got involved, he prescribed to the idea that fatter was funnier. He did. He would often be seen eating voraciously on set, consuming not only craft services, but also props made out of organic material. He even, in one scene, coquettishly ate his own bow tie. And then he finished it off with a custom martini of ranch dressing. Who can forget that scene? In live and let die. A disservice to Creole cuisine as much as it is a disservice to the franchise. Now, this ballooning sense of self-image was also tied together by the many practical gags that Roger Moore would self-affix. A renowned seamster 
in his own right, he would often employ such tricks as the water-spraying lapel flower and the handkerchief pocket square, which was actually many pocket squares tied end over end. When his wardrobe assistant would come to replace it, she would instead pull on it endlessly. As Roger Moore in his Caesarian gluttony and hedonism would laugh jowlily directly into her face. When Carrot Top cites you as a main reference for comedic inspiration, there's something incredibly wrong. When you affix whoopee cushions to the ass cheeks of your pants, there's something incredibly wrong. These things have no place in the franchise of James Bond. I could not have said it better myself. It is difficult to be impartial when the source material that we discuss is so dividing is so divisive and, in many ways, incisive. Rupert, I couldn't have put it better myself, but I'll try, and I will. If you don't mind, my last words tonight are going to be a little jaunt down Australian history. I await with trepidation, George. Now, there's nothing to be worried about, Rupert. I think you'll find that this story leads you down a path of enlightenment and brings you right back to where you wanted to end up. George, my trepidation has bloomed into full-on intrigue. Please, what are your final thoughts on the matter? So in the 1920s in Australia, there was a railroad tycoon, and he decided to build a railroad connecting Sydney to Perth along the southern coast. And so it was going to have three stops, okay, from Sydney to Melbourne, from Melbourne to Adelaide, and Adelaide to Perth. And conveniently, this bloke had three sons, and he wanted to get them involved in the family business. So he was going to allow each of his sons to build a leg of the railroad. Do you understand what I'm saying? I am following so far. So his first son was building the leg from Sydney to Melbourne. And he decided to build a very straight and efficient transitway. And because of this, people loved it. The second son from Melbourne to Adelaide built something a bit more scenic, uh, something that incorporated the landscape and the geography and the coast a bit more into the ride. But people loved that as well. Now, the third son got a little too fancy. From Adelaide to Perth, he essentially built a roller coaster. I'm not exaggerating here. It was a literal roller coaster. And sure, it got people from one place to another, but with all the loop-de-loops and giant drops, when you got there, all you wanted to do was get off the train, go home in your vomit-soaked clothes, and never think about what happened ever again. So what I'm saying here, Rupert, is that Roger Moore was this roller coaster train ride. He was too goofy, he was too circuitous, he was too boastful. But if there's one thing we can give him credit for, he got you where you wanted to go next, which was as far away as humanly possible from any Roger Moore film. Harsh, but fair and informed criticism from the legend himself. Roger Moore will remain forever one of those divisive characters on which many of the viewing public will never agree. But what everyone could agree on was the man that we speak about next. A reaction to the times. A gritty, dark, and ominous portrayal. A return, perhaps, too much to form for one Timothy Dalton. Don't miss that conversation. But until then, thank you. On behalf of the PBS and the BBC, I'm Rupert Carmichael. I'm George Lazenby. Good night. (laughs) 